Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, when women burned their bras in the 1960s as a protest against what they thought was an oppressive patriarchy, little did they know that one day men would appropriate those bras and every other item in women's wardrobes in order to reclaim womanhood for themselves. The transgender movement is, in its own strange way, a celebration of the femininity that feminists rejected a couple of generations ago. So it's no surprise that feminists and other leftists are among the most ardent supporters of the rights of men to pretend to be women and occupy their spaces. When women's rights campaigner Kelly J. Keane toured Australia in March, arguing, among other things, that men should not be allowed in women's bathrooms and change rooms, Australian feminist Jane Caro tweeted this, apparently transphobes are absolutely obsessed with toilets. I am having the most bizarre conversations. Obsessed with toilets? No, they just want to use them without sharing them with men. That's not an obsession. Besides, as far as bizarre conversations go, you can't get much more bizarre, and I'd add sinister, than a highly qualified surgeon sitting down with a 12-year-old female tomboy, prescribing her puberty blockers and testosterone and offering to one day slice off a piece of skin from her arm so she can manufacture an artificial genital that will never do what it's supposed to do. Compared to that, a conversation between Caro and women who want to retain women's spaces is perfectly normal. But normality is an awkward concept to some people these days. As I said last week, to leftists, normal is a catastrophe and catastrophes are normal. They despise all the traditions that made this country so free and prosperous and embrace every implausible imaginary apocalypse as if they are inevitable and in the process teach generations of young people to become hopelessly paranoid and pessimistic. My guest tonight is Catherine Deves. She became prominent last year when she was picked by then Prime Minister Scott Morrison to run for the previously blue ribbon seat of Warringah. Deves is as close as Australia has to a Kelly J. Keane, a defender of women's rights, especially against the incursions of transgender men. Deves has thrown her hat in the ring for the New South Wales Senate seat made vacant by the unfortunate death of the great Jim Molan. Let's find out what chance she has of winning the seat, how that might happen, and what she would bring to the table if she got there. Catherine, welcome. Hi, Fred. Thanks so much for having me on today. First, Catherine, please explain to the viewers how these things are decided when there is a vacant Senate seat and uh, it's the party in that particular state that decides who to replace or who to fill that vacancy. Yeah, that's right. There's an internal vote. Um, there's a number of people that are called selectors. Uh, uh, potential candidates put their hands up, they go through a nomination process, then they run a campaign internally, and then it's decide there's a democratic vote to decide on the person to fill that vacancy. 
Well, democratic is one way to put it. You're being very polite. Who are <laughs> these people and how did they get to the positions they have? And, and, and do they have uh, conflicts of interest? Uh, do you mean with the people who are, are voting? Yes. Um, voting in the candidate? Um, look, I mean, it, it's a huge group of people. Obviously, the Liberal Party is a divergent. Um, it, we have a broad church. There'll be people with many divergent views. Uh, people who are a member who are entitled to uh, put their hands up provided they uh, qualify uh, with membership requirements, etc. Um, yeah, so it's, it's just the grassroots members of the party. So it's members, it's not the executive, it's the members of the party in that state? Is that how it's decided? Uh, look, it's with uh, members of the, of the state executive, yes, who get to uh, okay. vote. So, and that's just yeah. a little more than a dozen people, isn't it? Oh, no, no, no. There's selectors that, there's 800 selectors. Sorry. 800 okay. selectors. Oh, all right. Now it's clear. Sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's, I mean, that's getting closer to democratic. I mean, you are being, filling a seat that is meant to represent the entire state of New South Wales to, to, to reduce the selection process down to 800 is, is not as bad as reducing it down to a dozen, but it's still... Uh, how does the process work? I mean, do you have to travel the state um, pleading your case to these people? How does it work? Oh, so you run uh, a campaign. So what you would do is uh, with the 800 people, you would uh, want to reach out to as many as possible. Uh, of course, you do that uh, via text message, snail mail. Uh, you would have a website. You would have a video stating what your... Um, what your views are, what platform that you're going to run on. Uh, it would be like an ordinary election campaign. You would have some events and you would make as big an effort as possible to connect personally with each of those people. Well, there's a lot of benefits of being selected to the Senate. So I imagine there are a lot of, uh, there's quite a few people who are very keen to get that spot. You did say, you were quoted a couple of days ago saying you'll pull out of the race if Warren Mundine puts his hat in the ring. Is that still the case? Well, look, I think Warren will be a very uh, welcome and necessary uh, addition to the voice debate, which is the hot issue of the moment. Uh, and with respect to that, I wouldn't want to detract uh, from his candidacy. But I think from what I'm hearing on the ground, it's going to be uh, quite a number of people nominating and they don't close until um, tomorrow, so I'm sure, sorry, I beg your pardon, until Thursday. So I'm sure there'll be a few dark horses making themselves known uh, in these uh, final few hours. Yes. Well, I'd argue you're, you're bringing as much to the table as Warren does, who's a great man and a good friend of this show too. So let's, uh, it would be nice to see you both go head to head for that matter. Now let's <laughs> dwell for a few minutes on the issue that made you the focus of media attention and attention from angry activists last year, you vehemently opposed the transgender industry and surgery for children. Do you think transgenderism is a denial of reality and catering to it is a mistake? Yes, and yes, to answer your question, uh, I, I do stand by the arguments that I've been trying to prosecute for quite some years. And I think that if we're trying to push forward an ideology where you're curated identity overrides uh, the biological sex, which is immutable, uh, it is objective, uh, you, you can't change it, it is determined um, at fertilisation uh, and presents itself at, at birth, unless of course you've had genetic testing or in utero scans, 
Um, and if we are trying to displace biological sex with an identity that is fluid, that is subjective, that can just be residing in your head, um, you know, I think we are untethering ourselves from reality. Absolutely. Well, you became quite famous last year for saying, for describing the process as surgical mutilation and sterilisation. Is that still the way you describe it? Well, the argument, uh, the, it, the issue has very much moved on in, in 12 months' time. There ha is litigation afoot. We have had the Tavistock exposure and scandal. Uh, we have had countries like Finland and Sweden step away from these affirmation pathways for children. Um, there is legislation being put forward in a number of states uh, in the US that has stopped this, these medical uh, pathways being available to children. And if you take a child that has not gone through puberty and you put them on puberty blockers, uh, they might end up infertile. And certainly if you put them on cross-sex hormones, they end up unable to have children. Uh, so that is a statement of fact that I made. And with respect to the surgeries, and they are happening to children, not the youngest uh, child that I've heard of here in Australia is a 15-year-old girl who had a bilateral uh, mastectomy. Uh, however, say over in the United States where their medical system is different and it's obviously a for-profit industry, I have heard of girls as young as 14, uh, 13, even 12 having the surgeries, certainly boys under the age of 18 having their genitals uh, removed. Um, and in my view, there is enough evidence out there of photos, uh, of videos of what's been done to children, the stories of the detransitioners, uh, where people are left with all sorts of uh, injuries, uh, infections that they cannot get control of, uh, net, uh, tissue that's gone necrotic and has to be removed, uh, that under legislation that absolutely could qualify uh, as mutilation because there is no physical reason to be doing this to to people's bodies. This is to do with um, solving what is essentially what I believe is a psychosocial or, or mental health issue. Um, so when you're doing this to people's bodies and leaving them disabled or leaving them with lifelong medical problems, uh, I think that terminology, in my view, is correct, albeit confronting, but correct. Well, you mentioned the closure of the Tavistock Clinic in Britain and other countries in Europe stepping away from this and litigation beginning to take uh, gain momentum. But it is it still does take some courage to speak as plainly about it as you do. And uh, I admire you for it because you've seen the threats and intimidation that comes from the transgender movement. What's it like to be on the receiving end of that? It feels like a witch burning. <laughs> to be honest, when uh, you you have said something, you know, statements of fact or an opinion and, you know, they come after you in such a way that they're attacking everything about you, they're data mining your life, they're trying to discredit you in every way possible, they're going after people who are associated with you, uh, your children, they're threatening your personal safety simply uh, because of an opinion. Uh, it's a really extraordinary experience. <laughs> Um, to go through and it just really highlighted to me and I've said this many times before how impoverished a public debate is and it also highlighted to me the dangers of this movement because the lengths that they will go to uh, to silence those who, who have legitimate concerns who have criticisms who are asking questions and it, it just makes me think you know what are these people up to 
why are they being allowed to get away with this and why can't we question it in a liberal democracy? Well, party, the Liberal Party power broker Matt Keane once said, referring to you, that there is, quote, no place in a mainstream political party for bigotry. Has Matt reached out to you since you threw your hat in the ring for the Senate seat? Uh, no, I have never spoken to Matt. And I'd like to say to him, you know, words mean things. And the word bigot actually means something. And that's an unreasonable belief, you know, in the face of evidence. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say that men are not women and that in certain contexts, women should have male-free spaces. Um, and also to say that putting children onto untested, experimental, medicalised pathways is deeply problematic. I mean, there's nothing bigoted about saying those things. Yeah, well, the, op the, the, the techniques from the other side, from the pro-transgender side, tend, tend to be calling people names or threatening them. Do you think that there is a correlation between that kind of argument and the fact that their argument doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Absolutely, because if you, you know, whenever they've come on the public stage to debate, inevitably their, um, their arguments just get torn to shreds. So they have to go after the person because, as you pointed out, it, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, feelings and ideology do not stand up to reality and facts. Indeed. Well, there are some signs that the, that the tide is turning, if not in Australia, then overseas, because one of the world's, you've probably heard this, one of the world's leading defenders of women's rights, uh, especially against transgenderism, is author J.K. Rowling, who over the past few years has suffered enormous vilification and very real death threats from trans activists. But the tide is turning. The Telegraph in London reported overnight that Warner Brothers Discovery has signed a 10-year deal with Rowling to do a TV series of the Harry Potter story with Rowling herself as executive director. Now, we've also seen a huge backlash against Budweiser light manufacturer Anheuser-Busch for its association with, uh, with our, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it, the most famous transgender person in the world, Dylan Mulvaney. Do you see the tide turning, Catherine? I think it is. I mean, I'm so pleased uh, for JK Rowling. Uh, this is a real vindication of the fact that, you know, she stood her ground on this and I'm very much looking forward to some children's entertainment that won't be woke. Um, and we see that, you know, as we say, go woke, go broke. I mean, Disney uh, has been really badly affected and really badly criticised. Um, you've got Ron DeSantis removing uh, all their special rights and privileges uh, in Florida because he's very upset with their woke agenda. And obviously with Budweiser, I mean, they didn't read the room. They didn't uh, consider what their customer base is and just said, oh, we're going to make it inclusive. We're going to, you know, concentrate on marketing this to, to women. And I, I, I failed to see how seeing a man pretending to be a woman and prancing around, you know, making a mockery of girlhood is going to uh, appeal to sort of frat boys and women and people who want to be inclusive. So I think, you know, so many people can't speak up in their real life, but they can certainly... Um, you know, when they make consumer purchases, if they go, well, I don't like that brand, they're woke, so I'm not going to buy their product. And it's showing, um, you know, the big corporates that we're not interested in, in being, you know, dictated to when we're simply buying like an everyday product. We don't want to be lectured to on virtue 
on what we should be virtuous about. People aren't interested in that. Yeah, uh, indeed. So I think, uh, indeed, yeah. when people buy a beer, all they want is good tasting beer, which uh, unfortunately Bud Light, Budweiser Light doesn't uh, <laughs> tick that box either. So, but just one last question on this uh, before we move on to a few other topics. But I want to get your opinion. Uh, on what you plan to do if you do make it into the Senate, will you pursue an investigation into, into the transgender industry in Australia? Look, I think there are serious questions that need to be asked, particularly around the affirmation model uh, for children and the encroachment into law and policy and also the, um, the criminalising and the sh sanctioning of those, including parents, teachers, medicos who have raised legitimate uh, concerns. Uh, I would also like an investigation into the government expenditure onto some of these diversity, equality, inclusion programs uh, that have been mainly spearheaded by the AIDS Council of New South Wales and how they've managed to infiltrate government departments. Questions definitely need to be asked. Yeah, there are some government departments that uh, that do act uh, fairly, um, have, have a lot of influence in the background uh, that certainly needs some light shone on them. I hope you would be able to do that from the Senate. But speaking of what you would do in the Senate, and I know this isn't your area of expertise, but will have to be one once if you do make <laughs> it. What about a royal commission into the COVID lockdowns and vaccine mandates? The the the. Uh, the adverse reactions to the vaccines in particular are becoming very, very worrying in Australia. Well, I mean, from a personal perspective, uh, I I got in, I had the vaccination. I think if I had my time again, I probably would say no. Uh, when it came to my own daughters, I wanted more evidence. Uh, they're only little girls. Um, they've got their whole future fertility and, and life ahead of them. And I just wasn't convinced. And obviously, as we're seeing, uh, there are more and more uh, questions that are being raised, more and more alarming evidence. Uh, and I think I agree with you. The only way to get to the bottom of it is to have a, a transparent impartial inquiry uh, and to look at all the evidence. Uh, also with respect uh, to the, the mandates and the lockdowns, I mean, this was a really egregious incursion into our freedom of conscience and movement and belief. And we're only starting to grapple, I think, with the ramifications of that, like the loss of small business, the extraordinary uh, mental health crisis that's being faced, particularly for young people um, and children uh, that, you know, I've got friends who've got COVID, ba what we call COVID babies, and, you know, they lost those early years of socialisation. Um, and I think we really need to take a hard look at the price that we've paid for all of this and also having a look at the numbers. I mean, how much did this this truly cost us and how much is it going to cost us in the future? We need to know so we can plan for the future if it, if it God forbid, it, it ever happened again. Do you think freedom is under threat in Australia? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have fundamental human rights of freedom of speech, you know, religion, uh, movement, association. I see encroachments into all those areas of life. And uh, we, I, I think in Australia, we've been so fortunate that we do uh, take it for granted to a degree. Uh, one particular example is the hate speech and vilification laws that are being introduced at the state levels. Um, I'm really alarmed by that. I think that some people are implementing it and they do have good intentions, but I think we need to be very, very cautious um, about implementing such such laws. I mean, in my view, the bar should be if you're actually inciting violence, 
Um, but I'm a bit of a free speech absolutist and I think it's more important to have, you know, people's ideas out there and they can be debated. And if they are bad ideas, then they'll, they'll be shut down by someone who can, who can sort of out-argue them uh, with, with better information and better, better data. Indeed. It's the government itself that is causing most of the diminishment of that freedom when it should be defending them. Now, Catherine, just a personal question. Have you changed much since the election campaign of 2022? It was pretty gruelling. What did you learn from it? Look, I, I really have. Um, there are some things that I'm incredibly grateful for. My life has been so enriched. I have met so many people from all different walks of life that I might have never crossed paths with, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. Uh, the other thing is that I've realised how how strong I am and that you can be put through an incredibly testing uh, experience like that uh, and, and still be standing. And also you find out who your true friends are. And often it's people who, who very much surprise you. And I've really benefited from some very, um, from some incredible support from some really wonderful people. And I'm, I'm actually, I, I don't regret it. I'm really grateful that I did it, to be honest. Well, well done, Catherine. I hope some of those friends are actually inside the Liberal Party and, and barracking for you. <laughs> yes. Catherine, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Fred. Appreciate uh, appreciate your time today. All right. That's potential New South Wales Senator and staunch women's rights defender, Catherine Deves. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is up next at 8 p.m. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. And you can catch all the latest from ADH's rapidly expanding lineup, which now includes the brilliant Damien Curry, who has brought his popular The Other Side podcast to TV. All our other shows by Lyle Shelton, David Flint, Nick Cater, Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Dave Pello, and more are live and on demand at adh.tv. On, you, on our app or wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.